Is it true? Can you really say that if ever you've loved Christ, you love Him today? I trust it's true of each and every one of us here and that we really know Him and we love Him with all of our being. Turn this morning, if you would, in the Word of God, the Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Bring the Word of God, and we'll sit at the Lord's table in the way He is appointed. Ever to remember our Lord. <clears throat> We've been going through the Song of Solomon for a long time now, just using it every time we come to the Lord's table, or at least on most occasions when we come to the Lord's table. And so we return again, but we've come to the final chapter of the book. And we're going to read the opening four verses of this chapter that we will Consider with the Lord's help this morning. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 1. Oh, that thou wert as my brother, that sucked the breasts of my mother. When I should find thee without, I would kiss thee. Yea, I should not be despised. I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house, who would instruct me. I would cause thee to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand should be under my head, and his right hand should embrace me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love, until he please. Amen. The Lord bless his word to us. Let's, let's pray. Let's seek the Lord again. God, we pray for our love to not just abide, but to strengthen our love for Christ. We ask that Thou wilt give us, please, Lord, give us real affections for Him, that we would be moved after Him daily, and we would want to serve Him with all of our hearts and lives. We pray that that would be reflected in real and sincere obedience, that we would love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we would endeavor to keep thy commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said. Help us, Lord. Grant that thou wilt work in our hearts today. Bless us then. Give the Holy Spirit to preacher and to those before us. May the Spirit of God fall upon us all and prepare us for the table of Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In his treasury of David, the famous Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon asks the question in one place, has there ever been a human creature that could stand on earth while clothed in the flesh and say, I am satisfied? This is one of the great perplexities of the Christian life, an entanglement of sorts in which we are to cultivate and grow in contentment, that's our call, 
And yet we're weighed down by the weakness of the flesh. And the fact that so many of our experiences of communion with Christ are are veiled. They are shadowy. They are not everything that one day they might be. We are to be content with Him. And yet, we will struggle with contentment with ourselves, and I think rightly so. But there will come a day. There will come a day in which your communion with Christ, believer, your communion will overtake all other exercises. He will be the focus of your life. He will be the preeminent thought of your mind. He will overwhelm every other desire, not by the resolution of your will, but by the transformation of your being. We will be like Him when we see Him as He is. But until then, we struggle. (laughs) We struggle to be perfectly content while being very aware of our limitations of love for Christ. But in this book, in this particular book, we have a lot of help. Help at least in the area of communion with Christ, our affections for Christ, and encouragement in that area. We have argued all along that it is intended to point to the relationship between Jehovah and Israel, between Christ and the church. And it is purposed, I believe, to help us. To help us in, yes, we, we, we don't have reason to be content with our love for Christ, but we have means, such as this book, to strengthen our love, to help shape our love and form our love and motivate us in love. We're being taught that a real, true, passionate love for Christ is, is not something that is alien to the Christian. It is to be cultivated, encouraged, sought. From the beginning of creation, both before and after the fall, God evidences His purpose to bring that man near to Himself. He is He's always doing that. He is is bringing man near to himself. As I pointed out many times, and no doubt you're aware, even after the fall, it it is God moving towards Adam. Adam, where art thou? He is seeking after him. He is is bridging the gap. He is closing the, 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 the breach, as it were. But all through time, all through the Scriptures, you find that's essentially what the Lord is doing. He is, he is bridging the gap. He is bringing man near to himself. And while the methods and expressions vary, the intent is constant. He is bringing man near. You see it illustrated in so many ways. Think of Rebecca, far away. And Abraham, the father, appoints that the servant should go and bring her near. The servant depicts there the Spirit's work in going after the sinner, as it were, going after the the bride, the church, bringing her near to the Son to be wed and brought together. This is constantly His work. This is what the Lord is doing for us. And this morning we are brought to a portion that is somewhat unusual, And yet I trust as we meditate upon it, the Lord will help us in our consideration. And I've titled this message simply, Christ as Brother to the Church. 
Christ as brother to the church. The language is somewhat strange. You will see that, but I trust that the Lord will help us to understand it in a way that is edifying. But note with me, first of all, as brother, he, that is Christ, assumes the nature of his people. He assumes the nature of his people. Look at verse 8. Oh, that thou wert as my brother that sucked the breasts of my mother. Strange language. Not exactly something you might expect to read here. And with slight variations, many believe that this reflects back to the bride before the marriage, and she is, she is longing that there might be some kind of relationship that is publicly acceptable. As one commentator puts it this way, her wish that he were like a brother clearly does not mean that she would like him to treat her as a real sister or that their relationship might be that of an actual brother and sister. Her real longing is for the relationship to be publicly acceptable. That's where many of them go. But I'm not so sure. I'm really not so sure that that is the intent. You look at the language. You see her desire is not just to be public with him, but you see what she says. When I should find thee without, I would kiss thee. Yea, and I should not be despised. Her desire is not just to be seen in public. Her desire is to be able to kiss and show affection. And this desire is where I think the, I guess the exegesis of the modern commentators breaks down. I just don't think it stands. You remember twice that Abraham went away uh, from Canaan. He went to Egypt, Genesis 12, and he there says that, you know, makes out that Sarah is his sister. And then again, he, he finds himself uh, in, in before the king of Gerar, Abimelech. And again, he says, like, that Sarah is my sister and tries to present her because he's afraid of, of what might uh, happen, how they might take her, and so on and so forth. And he's trying to preserve his own life, really. But his son, Isaac, follows the same pattern in Genesis 26. He also is in Gerar. And we read in Genesis 26, verse 7 and following, the men of the place asked him of his wife, and he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, she is my wife. Lest, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebekah, because she was fair to look upon. And it came to pass, note this, it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech king of the Philistines looked out at a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah his wife. And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety she is thy wife. And how saidest thou she is my sister? And Isaac said unto him, Because I said, Lest I die for her. So for some time, it says a long time, they're able to cover up the reality of the relationship. But their manner of sporting together on this occasion declared to the world, Abimelech has no doubt whatsoever, these are not brothers and sisters. They're a married couple. Such was their love for one another. Isaac and Rebekah could not continually fake the depth of their relationship. It was not only affectionate, it was intimate. And so you come back to Song of Solomon chapter 8, verse 1, and you think, can she really be desiring that he be as a brother for the intent that she might publicly be seen with him and be able then to kiss, and that some way that kiss would, would, ref, would not pervert the, the right course and decorum of, of, of public behavior? It, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to fit. 
So while I understand the argument that is made, I think her desire and mention of the kissing conflicts with such an interpretation. So whether it's in the context of marriage or a time which preceded marriage, this is an odd statement, whatever way it is taken by such that take it that way. So from my perspective, it only drives home the point that this book, its purpose is redemptive. It is reflecting the spiritual. It is not first human. It is God's relationship with man. It is the marriage of Israel to their God. And as we apply it today, Christ to His church. And I put it to you, beloved, as I thought about this, reading over this, Oh, that thou wert as my brother, that sucked the breast of my mother. I want you to think of this like as, as Israel's deep longing. What is Israel's deep longing? What is the greatest longing of the spiritual mind in Israel at this time, in the Old Covenant era? It is a longing, beloved. It is a longing that God would bring to pass what He promised. From the outset, what did He promise? He promised that He would take their nature in order to save them. That's the promise. Genesis 3 makes it clear that the one that needs to come into the world will be of the seed of the woman. Our Savior is depicted from the, from the immediate moment of the fall, the deliverance is clearly presented so that the old covenant believer understands that God, God in His working for His people and in His bringing of deliverance to His people must do so through the seed of the woman. So the student of the Scriptures knows that there is going to be a man. And that man, in fact, as he reads through his book of Genesis, will realize that, well, he is the line of Shem. And he is of the seed of Abraham. And he is of the tribe of Judah. And all of this he realizes as he looks and, and reads through the Old Testament. And he, he recognizes that he will be a prophet like unto Moses. But in all of this, in all these descriptions, and everything that's pointing here forward for them, there is this reality that the one that will deliver will be like unto me. He will be as a brother. He will possess my nature and He will deliver me. It may be argued, I think, also that since God promised that deliverance would come by a man, that God is also indicating to His people that in order to really know God, there must be a man that they will know and look to. And this then, I believe, is what the desire really reflects. Oh, that thou wert as my brother. This, this is Old Testament, the Old Testament church longing for identity, longing for a sense of someone that, that is able to identify in their sin, in their need, in their fallen condition, one that, as it were, sucked the breast of my mother. I mean, it's, it's very, very graphic language. But it's a sense of we, we come from the same stock. 
They are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And beloved, this, this lays out at the very commencement here the clear understanding of Christ assuming the nature of His people in order to be their Redeemer. And this is the longing of our heart. This has not yet come to pass. This is the Old Testament. They are looking forward to this. They are praying for this day. They are longing for this day. Their people, their whole lives revolve around the expectation of this day. So by faith, the Old Covenant Church is looking forward to an incarnate Messiah, desiring that the Word who was in the beginning with God and was God, would be made flesh and dwell among them. That's what her expression here communicates. And when Jesus then came, he, he falls into this very pattern of language. He speaks generally of his ministry and his relationship to men through his ministry. You remember the words of Luke 8, verse 20. This is mentioned in a number of the Gospels. When he says in Luke 8, 20, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. He says, I have, I have a family, but it's not the way you think. And I have a relationship to people, but it's not the way you think. My true family are those which hear the word and do it. After his resurrection, he said to Mary, go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God, John 20, 17. So again, he's affirming this. He's, he's, he's making explicit. This is the first time where he explicitly says that the disciples are as my brethren. They're his brethren. Turn for a moment to Hebrews 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And I, I don't have the time to spend a lot of time this morning on, in Hebrews chapter 2, but I want you to at least be familiar with this doctrine, this, this truth that we're, we're seeing here in this passage and the chapter that most clearly deals with it. Hebrews chapter 2. So Jesus Christ is being elevated as, as greater than all, higher than angels, and so on and so forth. And in verse 10, we're told, It became him... For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth, and they who are sanctified, are all of one. The one who is set apart, and the one is the one who sets apart his people, and they're all united together, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now here's what I want you to know as we read on. I want you to see the connection with Christ and his humanity and as brother of his people, and as it ties into his redemptive work. They're all connected. You can't separate them. In his redemptive work, he becomes. He had to become man. And in that, of course, the purpose was to die. But to die, he brings his people so that they are brethren to him. Brethren together, we might say as well. Verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. These are quote, quotations from the Old Testament. 
And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. As I say, I don't have a whole lot of time to get into it, but I want you to see the connection. That as the old covenant believer looked forward, and they're looking for Messiah, and they're looking for a Redeemer, they're looking for a substitute, they're looking for a great high priest, they're looking for one to stand and offer himself as a sacrifice unto God. They are looking for one who can take their nature and be their brother. And that is a desire that's reflected back in the Song of Solomon. Go back there. It's what she's longing for. It's what she's looking for. This is her prayer. This is the Old Testament church desiring this. Now, she had previously described him in an otherworldly way. Back in chapter 5, verse 10 and following, she mentions him in this great high and lofty way with all these precious metals and so on. But here she is desperate for his condescension. Here she is longing for a sense that as the relationship grows, she can truly identify with him. So she longs for this to come to pass. So we see then, as brother, Christ assumes the nature of his people. This is clearly taught in the Word of God. But secondly, as brother, he receives the affection of his people. As brother, he receives the affection of his people. Psalm 2 puts it plainly that the sinner, the lost, the, those that are cut off from God, should kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. This is a call. This is, this is gospel preaching. This is the appeal to the nations. This is the appeal to every lost sinner. Kiss the Son. Don't stay away from Him. Don't avoid Him. Don't turn your back on Him. Don't live life without Him. No, kiss Him. That's the urgency of it. It is calling sinners to come near to Christ, to enter into relationship with Christ, to fall before Christ, and to show that in this way. Kissing, not standing away. No, you must run into His arms. You must get a hold of Him. You must grab Him. You must know Him as intimately as you know anything else. This is encouraged in the second psalm. And so she says, When I should find thee without, I would kiss thee. As I reflected on this, And you may do your own Bible study here because I thought of it and then I looked it up and I couldn't see anything to contradict it. But you correct me if I'm wrong. Only two people are ever said to kiss Jesus Christ during His ministry here on earth. 
One, of course, is infamous Judas Iscariot. Betrayest thou the son of man with a kiss? Yes, indeed. But there's one other. I make mention of her regularly because she convicts me and she teaches me so much. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Turn there. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. So I want you to see this. She's, she is, as far as the culture is concerned, she is at polar opposites to this man. He's a Pharisee. He is decorated religiously. It could be not much further for him to go. He is, he is he's seen as this prestigious individual. She, however, is known for her uncleanness, for her past of sin. And it would be easy for her to, to, to avoid, to, to not come near, but such is her love. She brings an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And began to wash his feet with, his, with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee which had bidden him sought, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Now you can go on and read the rest of it for yourself, but, but I want you to get this. I want you to get this. I think this is the only time, other than Judas... We have clear evidence explicitly stated that someone is kissing Christ. And it's a woman who knows herself to be a sinner and feels herself to be cut off from God. And in the humanity, in the humanity of the Son of God, she sees, she sees an answer for her. She sees hope for her sin. She sees something that can console her, something that the Pharisee couldn't understand. That here is one who, who understands, who, who as, as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he is, he is touched with the feeling of my infirmity. He has been tempted in all points like I have been, though he, praise God, without sin. And she kisses him. She shows her affection. She lavishes upon him everything she can. And I want you to understand that humanity, the humanity helped her. The humanity of Christ helped her. It wasn't God as a consuming fire before her, though He is a consuming fire. It wasn't some other frightful scene in the thunderings of Sinai that would petrify her. It was the humanity of the Son of God where she felt she could come near and be accepted and show her love and her affection. Oh, beloved, I want you to keep that in mind. I want you to keep it in mind. This, this is our Savior. And in His humanity, He set up and instituted this. And the very first one, he, he sat with, with a bunch of men. 
And they ate together and he instituted this table and forever he said, this, this is what I want all my people to do. And one day I, in my glorified humanity, will, will again sit with my people. And you will do this until that day. You will remember all that I am and all that I've done until that day. James Durham, in his commentary on Song of Solomon, he notes here, the great duty of one that finds Christ is to love Him and to let the heart flow out on Him. It is. <laughs> it's, it's the great duty. It's just like this woman. It's, it's to, when you find Christ, it's to love Him. Not in some kind of vague way, but really, really laying hold of Him, like this woman. It helped her to, to see Him there and to, to watch Him and his love for the common people, and his message to them, that he would save them, and he would wash away their sins, and all that she had heard, and I don't know everything she had heard, but she had heard enough that made her aware that I can come to him, I can even come to him publicly in the Pharisee's house. And you know what she said here back in the Song of Solomon? When I should find thee without, I would kiss thee, yea, I should not be despised. I have a right to do this. Now, now, that woman, in one sense, she was despised. Though in another sense, it was really Christ that was taking all the, the criticism from Simon. But I think it's a, it's a lovely reminder, just simply, that Christ desires your affections, that you don't get to passively enjoy the love of Christ without the obligation of reciprocity. Does He love you? Does He? Does he love you, Christian? Then love him back. How much does he love you? Then love him back with all that you can. That's, that's the call. And so that's what she's saying. I would kiss thee. I would. I wouldn't run away. I wouldn't hide myself. And even if I have to bear reproach for it, I would, but she believes that she will not be despised. And there's different ideas as to this, but Put simply, let's think of it this way. Those who kiss Christ ultimately will not be despised. Now, the world will have its things to say about you as a believer. You know it. In this world, you'll have tribulation and there will be persecution. If you claim Christ and you live for Him, you will. You'll have, you'll have hardship, Christian. You will. But ultimately, what will happen on that day when this same Jesus is so gone come again in like manner. The same Jesus. The same one that that woman held and kissed his feet. Though glorified, the same Jesus will come back. And you'll not be ashamed then. You won't. Anything you've suffered, anything you've gone through, we, the, the choir reminded us of it, didn't they? One, one view of him, one gaze upon him, it'll all be worth it. Thirdly, as, a, as brother, he teaches amidst the gathering of his people. As brother, he teaches amidst the gathering of his people. Go on to verse 2. I would lead thee. Here's what she will do. I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house who would instruct me. So we saw this already in chapter 3, verse 4. If you go back there. Chapter 3, verse 4 that she wouldn't let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. 
And back then, we, we pointed again to the fact that, this, again, this, this, is, this is language that's being used of, of human experience to some degree, but it's ultimately much more lofty. And it speaks here of an environment of fellowship, an environment that is most conducive to fellowship, namely the church. And here again, she's saying, I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house, into the place where I was born place where I was nurtured, the place where I was taught, I would bring you right there. And this, 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 this again, beloved, I, I believe this is, is pointing to that, that longing, that desire that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant church had was to, to really have a real experience of the presence of their God and that that would be manifest most fully. They, they, they wouldn't think about it in their own tents. They would think about it in the temple that they would meet with God in the temple. And this is her longing, bringing him into the, the place that was the true spiritual mother of her, the place of worship. I'll not get into all the argument for the, the church as the mother of the people of God, but that's what the Word of God teaches. And here you have it again. And she is wanting to bring him, bring him into the, into the place where there is fellowship, where there is a real experience with him, where she can truly experience him in all of his glory. And the desire, of course, is that bring them there so that he would instruct her, or she would instruct her, whatever the case is. I think some take it as the mother would instruct her, and that may be the case. The church is the place of instruction. But here, here's, the, here's the key, that she wants to lead him. It's like a procession. Right? It, do, it doesn't seem right that, the, that she would lead him. That, that seems to be kind of role reversal there. But, but I want you to see that there's a place where the church leads Christ. It's as not leading him as if they're superior, but leading as in a sense of procession. And they are bringing, they are bringing him into this place where they all will gather. And beloved, this is, this is what happens. I, I, I couldn't, as I read this, I thought immediately of Revelation 3. And I thought of the church at Laodicea. And the condemnation that was upon that church was the fact that Christ wasn't brought into their fellowship. That was the condemnation. He was outside. And he was knocking on the door. And no one could hear it. Or no one wanted to hear it. And so he sends a letter. A letter that says, I'm at the door. And I'm knocking. I'm knocking, I'm looking for entrance. And this, this is this tragic scene of a church that's on the brink of having the candlestick taken away and no more experience of the presence of Christ. And he is appealing to them. He is appealing. He's saying, no, 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 no. No, if you just hear my knock and open the door. Oh, invite me in. Invite me, bring me with you. Bring me with you. And if we could understand, imagine, imagine we started to think of public worship as a procession where every one of us is leading Christ into the place of worship. Imagine that. Imagine the sense of purpose. And I want to lead, I want to lead him into the place of worship. That I'm bringing him into the place of worship. And I want to meet with him. I want everyone else to meet with him. I think there's a sense in which we all, every one of us, brings something of of. I have to word this carefully, so this is very crude, but there's, there's something in which we, we, there's a way in which we bring something of the Lord into the house of God or not. 
that rightly prepared, we, we bring the Lord with us, and wrongly prepared, ignoring Him, we leave Him outside. It seems clear from Laodicea and other passages. So she doesn't want that. She wants to lead Him. She wants to lead Him into the place of fellowship, of communion, of intimate experience with Him. And He brings, when He comes in there, there will be instruction. Yes, the church will instruct, but ultimately the difference in the instruction, I want you to note this, it's the fact that He is there that the instruction becomes significant. So we can have church, and we can pass on information, and I can disseminate information. But beloved, there needs to be something more. There needs to be something in your heart that craves something more than information. You need to desire Christ. And I can't, I can't do this. I, can't, I, can't, I don't have the power of myself to bring Him down. There needs to be in every one of our hearts a real sincere longing that Christ be brought in and Christ to be here and Christ to make Himself known. And so, yes, there's information, there's, there's, there's instruction, but He meets with us in that instruction. There's, it's life-changing. It's not just head-filling. It's life-changing. And when Christ comes in, you can be sure there's, there's, there's life-changing instruction. When He went into the temple, <laughs> you knew, you knew when Jesus was in the temple. You knew it. Matthew 21, verse 12, he comes into the temple on that occasion and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. The people who are not meant to be there will all of a sudden feel very unwelcome. They will. And when Christ is present, he also brings real conviction for the reality of sin. And people trifling with sin, they'll know. They'll know that they have no business being there. He healed the blind and the lame. Verse 14 of the same chapter. They will see evidences of, of His power. Around the same time, we're, we're told He taught daily. This is the week leading up to His, his death. Luke 21, 38 says, All the people came early in the morning to Him in the temple for to hear Him. So that week, I mean, they're, they're constantly coming into the temple early in the morning to hear Him speak. And so then we're told in Matthew 21, 23, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, by what authority doest thou these things and who gave thee this authority? Can't ignore him. Can't ignore him. And this, is, this is a need. This is a need. There are a lot, of, a lot of church life in America, in the West. Lots of church life. Churches all over the place. And there's people who gather, and there's all sorts of stuff that goes on. But is the real presence of the risen Christ there? Is it actually making people who are wicked against God feel uncomfortable? And is it also comforting the hearts of those who are humble and teachable and long to hear from Him? They got up early in the morning to hear Him. This is a different rabbi. Never a man speak like this man. 
So she wants this. This is what she's inviting back to Song of Solomon. I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house who would instruct me. Instruction goes on because he is there. That makes all of the difference. Then she goes on to say, I would cause thee to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate, which is an unusual wording of it, but basically it's speaking of a type of wine made from pomegranates, of which there were added spices to that, and she wants him to, to come in and, and enjoy, enjoy what she has made. Wine from pomegranate and the spices that have been added. John Gill remarks here about the tribe of Dan. There was a city in the tribe of Dan called Gathrimon, which is the wine press of the pomegranate. So this actually went on. People used pomegranate juice. They made wine from pomegranate juice, but, but they didn't just leave it as it was. In order to make it more appealing, they would add spices to it. Why do you add spices to something? Why do you season anything? It's to make it better, isn't it? That's why you add salt, that's why you add pepper, that's why you add whatever it is you like to add, spices and so on. You add it because without it, it feels like there's something missing, or it can be improved. It can be improved. It may be edible, and one person might say, it's fine, it's fine, but it can be improved. And that is what she wants him to come in and see, that she, she has made something. Her life, this is it. This is the graces of her life. She wants him to taste of what she has become. She wants him to taste of what his grace has produced in her life. And so it's pomegranate juice, yes, and as delightful as that is, there, there are other graces that come in, other spices that must be added. And they enhance the flavor, beloved. They enhance the flavor. So when you see someone who's just saved, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to see someone just converted. There it is. It's plain old pomegranate juice, as it were. Right? It's good, and you can enjoy it, and you can appreciate it. But you don't want them to stay there. You want them to grow. Oh, flourish, believer. Oh, enjoy the grace of God. Go on with God. Add in the graces. Add them all in. Look at the fruit of the Spirit and say, I want them all. And I want as much of them as I can handle. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. I want all of that. I want it all. Because when I have all of that, then I emanate something. And Christ tastes it. And it's a delight to Him. It is. He enjoys it. Finally, as brother, He communicates assurance to His people. He communicates assurance to his people. His left hand should be under my head and his right hand should embrace me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you stir not up nor awake my love till he please. We've had the same two verses back in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Well, almost exactly the same. And the picture, verse 3, is very simple. His left hand should be under my head and his right hand should embrace me. What's she wanting? Security. Security. 
He's taken me in. He's holding my head. His arm is around me. I feel secure. God had made many promises to Israel, assured them of his presence in numerous ways. I was just reading recently of the of Numbers chapter 9, the latter part of that chapter where you have the, the uh, we're told about the presence of the Lord by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And so, whether it be by day or by night, as it moved, they moved. And as it stopped, they stopped. And it was just constantly there as a reminder that God is with them. God is with them. And other ways, he, he, he assured them that he was their God and he was with them. Then Jesus Christ comes along, and he says in John 10, I mean, you could read that whole chapter for, to communicate assurance, but it culminates in a certain sense. In verse 28, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I have a hold of my people. I have a hold of them. I hold on to them. I, I grab them. I seize them. And there are forces at work that try to pull them out of my arm. That try to tear them from my grip. But it's not going to happen. Nothing, no one, no person, no devil, not time, not ourselves, will ever cause the grip of Christ to loosen. And lose his people. And this is what's assuring her. When he comes in and he's close to her, his left hand under her head, his right hand embracing her, she is assured. It's assurance, beloved. That's, that's the key. She wants to be assured of his presence and his nearness. Now, now this, this is true. This is what we want. <laughs> Christianity is not some flash-in-the-pan experience. If it is, it's a very poor one. And I think most... Retract that. Many people have experienced that form of a Christianity. It has been an emotional thing that they have responded to, and then it peters out. It doesn't go on. They responded to some kind of event, some kind of um, whatever was going on in their life. Maybe they were at the rock bottom, and they cried out, God have mercy on me. But it wasn't sincere. It wasn't real. It wasn't, and it, you don't know at the time, but eventually you see, it just peters out. And the reason, the reason that Peter's out is not because their grip failed on Christ, but because Christ's grip was never around them. They never, they never were brought in. So it's not her grip that she's interested in. It's not how her hand is around him in some way. But his hand, that's what makes a difference. That's where the assurance is. Are you in him? Are you Christian? Are you his? You belong to him. You have eternal life so that you'll never perish. and No one will ever pluck you out of his hand. Verse 4, we've come across this. I don't know, it's maybe the third time or something. We've come across this. 
basically a charge, don't disturb. Do not disturb this. Daughters of Jerusalem seem to be kind of nominal, not maybe carnal, certainly a kind of nominal experience, whatever their experience is. It's, it's, it's not as intimate as hers. It's not as real as hers. And she is charging them, don't disturb it. Don't disturb it. Get away. She's driving back the world. That's what she's doing. She's driving back the influences that would disturb the intimacy that she enjoys with the one she loves. And we should charge the world, beloved. We should. We should. We charge the world. Get out. Get out. I don't want you. You get up every morning and all of its, all of its lusts, all of its appeal, all of its attention, it's right there. It's right there. And you know he's told you, love not the world. He's told you that. And you know that if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. But it comes with its enticements. It dangles all of its, all of its glitter and all of the things that appeal to the flesh. It knows exactly what it is that you're, you're particularly weak towards. It knows. The devil knows. The world comes and tries to just bring you into its entanglements. Come on. Come on with me. And you need, you need to give a charge. You do, Christian. Begin to give charges. Get out of my life. I want nothing to do with you. I'm not interested in what you have to offer. Remember Job? This wealthy man who is the world at his feet. I made a covenant with my eyes that I should not look upon a maid. That's a man getting serious, isn't it? That's a man getting serious. And so, this is, this is her heart. Go away. Don't disturb. Don't disturb us. Let me walk in this fellowship and communion with my bridegroom. I was the other day, Friday night, with the family reading in Proverbs. And I, we were reading chapter 17, verse 17. A brother is born for adversity. Man, that hit me. It really hit me. Has some powerful application. A brother is born for adversity. Think of it. You could say it like this. The only purpose in brotherhood is to be there when you're needed. We can all get by. We, we can all drift through independently. And there are many creatures out there in God's kingdom, and that's what they do. They may be born with other siblings around, but many of them, as soon as they're born, or they leave the nest, or whatever, they part ways, never to see each other again. We are not like that. We are not like that. We are brethren. We are a brotherhood. 
I thought about a brother is born for adversity. He is born for the purpose of adversity. The part of your, you fulfilling your purpose is that you be a brother in a day of adversity. When your brother needs you, you're there. Our brothers don't need us whenever they're doing fine. They do to some degree, but, but they don't need us as much. But the real time when you know a brother, when you know he is a brother, when you know he is a brother, is when he's there in adversity. Not right. That's right. And beloved, that, that's our goal here. Right here. <sighs> you talk about convicted. To be there. Now that requires a certain amount of honesty. That means at times you have to say, help me. It also means that we have to respond to those appeals. But this is real. But here, here's, <laughs> here's the glorious picture of it. Our brother is born for adversity. Is the fact that Jesus Christ, yes, all oh, that thou wert as my brother. To what end? To what end does she desire him to be as her brother? That he's born for adversity. He is born to bear the adversity of what the sinner faces. The adversity, the trouble of facing a holy God, being an unholy person, and having no righteousness, and having nothing to present before God. That's adversity. Oh, that is the great adversity. You can have troubles, but there's no trouble like that trouble. A sinner standing before a holy God in the day of judgment with no answer. Beloved, listen to me. This, this is it. Christ was born. He was born. A brother for adversity. He bore the wrath of God. And you get to sit at a table. No fear of judgment. There is therefore now no condemnation. None. Why? Because a brother was born for adversity. Christ went to the cross, bore your sin in full, entirely. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Yes. Jesus Christ. Oh, that thou wert as my brother. Praise God. He is. He is. As. Our brother. Let us pray. Lord, what a difference, what a difference Christ has made for us. 
taking our humanity, not as a display of love simply, but to take all our guilt and shame, made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He is not ashamed. We're ashamed of some of our brothers. God help us. Help love to cover a multitude of sins. For he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Praise his name. Be with us as we continue, as we sit at thy table. Oh, oh come Lord. Come to this place. We pray in Jesus' name.